Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And we have one of the leading zoos in the country right here in Seattle, the Woodland Park Zoo. Summer is a great time to take the family to this award-winning zoo. It's got diverse animal exhibits. The Woodland Park Zoo, it's also a platform for educational purposes and participation in global efforts to understand and protect the world's animals and their habitats. And joining me today to talk about all that, the Vice President of Conservation Initiatives at the Woodland Park Zoo, Peter Zoller. Peter, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Gary, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I just love the zoo here in Seattle. Anybody who's lived here long enough and has visited the zoo, it only usually takes once and you want to go back again and again. I've lived here my whole life. I just love the Woodland Park Zoo. So I love talking about it. And um, glad to have you in here to talk about something, well, being the Northwest, we kind of put our nose up and say, yeah, we know a little bit more about ecology and, and the environment and conservation, but you know, we really don't. We can continue to learn it. And you're, I guess, a distinct role there, right? You, you don't, you're not an animal keeper. You're a, the director of, what's it, a conservation initiatives. That sounds very important. Uh, well, the Woodland Park Zoo, besides having great animals and exhibits and a great place to see music in the summer and, and take the family does things outside of the borders there uh, in it, the Finney neighborhood, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. Um, we've actually been involved in conservation internationally and regionally for decades now. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. The zoo itself is, of course, a cultural institution, a great trusted thing that's been there for uh, over 100 years now. Uh, that's uh, right. 1899 or something. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we've actually been involved in conservation in the wild now for a long time, um, both here in the greater Seattle area and in the Washington state area, but also internationally. Um, and we have about 35 projects right now around the world, working on Malayan tigers, on tree kangaroos in Papua New Guinea, um, here again in the Pacific Northwest on species such as wolverines and uh, western pond turtles. Wow. The list I mean, goes on. that is a cool list that we just scratched the surface of. Like I said, some 35 initiatives going on. Each of those are intriguing. We could go anywhere with that. I guess before I get too far in, I, some basics for the listeners. Oh, um, Woodland Park Zoo, like you said, uh, over 100 years. And now, I don't know how long ago, but you're not really part of the city of Seattle. You're your own nonprofit, right? This is a thing I think people don't stop and know. You're not part of the city's budget per se. I think they have a a parks and recreation chunk they send over, but you really are your own standalone nonprofit, right? Correct. That happened some years ago. Um, and we're now actually one of the largest conservation organizations in Washington state working on international conservation. Yeah. And so that's important for people to realize when they say, yes, I'm going to go to the zoo. I'm going to join as a member and pay that for like a whole year's worth. And, and that it is, it's not getting any tax dollars, really. It's people supporting it as members. And like you said, it's a conservation movement and group like, uh, I don't know, like Trouts Unlimited might be or something like that, I guess. Exactly. And and when you do visit the zoo, of course, the money that you uh, pay to get into the zoo actually goes toward conservation, not just the animal care for the, the tremendous exhibits that we have in the zoo, but also saving wildlife in the wild. You know, there are so many beautiful exhibits and we can kind of get to where we want to go through that. Uh, there's some favorites that people love. The The penguin display is awesome. The otters are, are always entertaining. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of new, there's always new members showing up. There's some brand new baby red pandas, are they called pandas? Red pandas? Red pandas, yep. Uh, they're a couple months old. There's a 
relatively young couple giraffes, or is it just one giraffe, well, I, I think? I uh, believe it's just one. Uh, and now two new members that are young but not born here in the zoo, rhinoceroses, right? Or is it rhinoceri? What is it? Rhinoceroses? I don't Probably know. easiest to go with rhinos. Well, okay, rhinos. There we go. Uh, young rhinos, right? Yes, they're, they're essentially young teenagers now, um, Taj and Glenn. Taj they're, and Glenn. They're greater one-horned rhinos uh, from basic, well, they're now found in Assam and India. They were found across a large proportion of South and Southeast Asia 150 years ago or so. There were a large number of them, but they decreased um, due to hunting and loss of habitat to about oh, 200 animals by around 1900 or so. Um, it was really quite a disaster. And through a series of actions taken by the Indian government and the Nepalese government and supported now by Woodland Park Zoo since 2002, that species has actually had a tremendous recovery, which is just wonderful. The population now globally is about 3,500, so a 17-fold increase. Really? Yep. Now, say that again. That's that's a fantastic yep. success story, isn't it? it? It is. I think it's something that, that people don't realize, especially in, in today's world where there's so much bad news out there. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of conservation successes happening, and, and the, the greater one-horned rhino is a conservation success story. It, its original footprint would have been how much of Asia? Uh, it, well, it went from Pakistan into Southeast Asia. Um, and again, now it's primarily found only in India and Nepal. But the population is, is now literally 17-fold larger than it was at about 3,500. So rhinos themselves as a, as, a, as a group of species has decreased by over 90% in the last couple hundred years. Oh, man. Really dramatic. Um, and there's a couple of varieties in Africa that are really almost gone, right? Exactly. The black-horned rhino is down to a couple thousand animals. Um, the, white, the white rhino is doing much better, um, but there are also two other species of rhinos found in Asia that are just doing terribly. One is down to about 100 animals, and the other is down to perhaps 60. Left. Wow. Um, but the, the greater one-horned rhino is actually really doing a tremendous job of coming back. We work with the, uh, the International Rhino Foundation um, as our partner over there, and they've just been doing a fantastic job. And so these Taj and Glenn are their names, right? So these guys came from two different places because they've got two different names. One, Taj sounds Indian named, and Glenn doesn't sound very ethnic uh, Indian at all to me. <laughs> Correct. So Taj came over from the San Diego Zoo, mm -hmm. um, where he was born, and Glenn came from the Wilds, which is in Ohio, um, operated primarily by the Columbus Zoo there. Um, Glenn, I think, was named after the astronaut. Oh, John, John Glenn, Glenn and yes. longtime senator of Ohio, yes, too. Okay, exactly. Ohio, John Glenn, Glenn the Rhino. Mm -hmm. And the greater one, if I ask a silly question, to me, they don't look like they have a very big horn. They don't. Um, that's because the, they're teenagers. Okay, okay. So, yeah, they're, so they're just in the very early stages of growing the horns. The horns will eventually, if, if they get to full size, be about two feet in length. Um, and describe, so I wish this was one time, this wasn't radio. Describe how big these guys are as teenagers. They are and, big. They're about 2,000 pounds a piece. <laughs> um, those are enormous. And it's still probably less than half the weight that they'll have as an adult. They can be well over 4,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. Full size. And the zoo now, this exhibit, the, what do you call it? The awesome rhino reserve. Describe mm -hmm. that area and what part of the zoo that's in, because this was kind of over the last couple of years, built and designed, right? Yeah, so it's it's an old part of the zoo. Um, it's been specially refitted uh, to take these two rhinos and to have a number of other species, um, Asian brown tortoises, as well as cranes um, for sort of a, an exhibit for that region. 
Uh, at the same time, we've actually incorporated a number of really interesting high-tech uh, parts of the exhibit um, that are really new for zoo exhibits. We have um, a virtual reality initiative that we're actually pilot testing right now. One of the interesting things about zoos, you know, the exhibits are what bring people to a zoo, but much of the action actually happens behind the, the backdrop, as it were. I mean, if you think about the fact that we have over 1,500 animals of 300 different species, um, you can imagine just in terms of feeding those animals what it takes. I mean, each one of these rhinos eats about 50 pounds of food a day. Um, <laughs> and then you multiply that with all the species, you know, across the zoo, whether it's tigers and jaguars or meerkats and all the different kinds of foods involved, the veterinary care, the animal care in general. It's enormous. So the virtual reality initiative is first trying to look at what's actually happening for these rhinos behind the scenes and giving people a chance to experience that. So it's still in the pilot stage. Um, we're hoping it, it goes live to audiences perhaps next year. Wow, so that's kind of I don't know, 21st century technology. I'm thinking back to 1899. It must have been a completely different looking zoo that just had enclosures and bars. I suppose that's the way zoos were in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and now... Beyond talking about how we're you're exhibiting them, and you're, the zoo really is part of the mission to be outside of the zoo. Let's talk about the the real mission of uh, that part of the zoo to help conservation around the world. You can either go with rhinos, since we're talking about uh, Taj and Glen, and or pandas or wolverines or something regionally. I don't care because it's it's. I think that stops people and go, wait a minute, my dollars are helping outside of this zoo? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the rhino work, I mean, it's it's been focused largely on on management of the protected area, Kazaringa National Park, which contains about 70% of the world population of greater one-horned rhinos right now in Assam, which is found in northern India. The The focus now is trying to actually translocate rhinos from this park um, to some of the other parks around India that have have been well managed and that but have lost their rhinos so we want to bring them back to these parks which will allow them to breed and build up the population even further ah. so that's a very exciting new project we expect to see the population start to really rise in india over the next few years with that so when woodland park zoo decides to become involved in this kind of a project is, is it something that's already going on and you've found it and you know a board of direct maybe in a <laughs> closed room says hey you know there's a great project going on here we ought to help contribute to that or is it something as an initiative you say you know what we got to find some partners and get them local people and a few other zoos around the world to fund this and I don't know. Maybe it works both ways. I don't it, know. It actually does work both ways. So huh, I got one. <laughs> yep. So in, in, in the Rhino example, the International Rhino Foundation has been out there working, and, and our job has been to, to support them in a variety of different ways. Um, another example, though, where we've done it from a very different perspective is in Papua New Guinea, where we started working on tree kangaroos. Dr. Lisa Daybeck um, started doing research on tree kangaroos, boy, 20-some years ago and quickly realized that the tree kangaroos were in trouble. The biodiversity of Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, um, yeah, and was I suffering. I would think that's still one of the most wild places. It's, it still is, but one of the problems... But with, there's a tree kangaroo that's native to there? There, there are two was, species. Um, Woodland Park Zoo focuses on Machi's tree kangaroo, um, which is found sort of to the, the northeast, I guess, of, of the island. And 
But one of the problems with doing conservation in a place like Papua New Guinea is, and Papua New Guinea is renowned for where conservation organizations sort of go to die in terms of their projects, <laughs> oh, oh, no. because they, they, they oftentimes have historically tried to model conservation on the way it works elsewhere in the world developing these big protected areas that are often federal or state-run. In Papua New Guinea, 90% of the land is owned um, customarily, which means that it's local communities, families, clans that own these lands. So you can't just plop a big conservation area, protected area, national park, whatever it might be, onto these lands because people are living there. They own the land themselves. So, you know, when you people have tried to do that and failed miserably over the years. And and Lisa was very smart. She sat down with communities. She started working with individuals. And it's it's very complicated in Papua New Guinea. There are hundreds of languages. Um, and even if, if clans or families speak the same language, they may not get along. So developing a program there has, is very complicated and, and took a long time, not surprisingly. But eventually she actually created her own protected um, area with a an NGO that was based in Papua New Guinea, the Tree Kangaroo Conservation Program. And they are now managing this park. Um, it's the first protected area that is communally managed and acknowledged by the government in, in PNG's history. Wow. And and more than that, it's it's doing more than just saving tree kangaroos and biodiversity. It's also really helping local people. They have a lot of livelihood projects there now, which includes selling pesticide-free um, sustainable coffee through Cafe Vita, which is here in Seattle. Um, it's only available in a few venues, which includes our zoo. So please, if anyone is out there looking for Cafe Vita coffee, you will be supporting conservation in Papua New Guinea if you find it. Um, so that's an example of livelihood operations where the local people are actually getting about 35% above market value selling directly to Cafe Vita. You know, that's an awesome thing to hear in that because, you know, some people think, ah, oh, yes, uh, people coming from the West to put in their own footprint here and tell you, you got to save these tree kangaroos. And then for a variety of snowballs tumbling down the hill, it puts people out of their livelihood. But if there's a way to incorporate changes that benefit them as well as benefit the tree kangaroo, that sounds awesome way to do things. Absolutely. And I think you have to do that. There are so few places left in the world that are devoid of people. Um, people are everywhere now. So you have to incorporate them within the conservation planning of the work. And they, they have to actually lead that process, in my belief. Um, they have to buy into it for it to succeed over the long term, right? Yes, but yeah. I think more than just buying into it, and the way you get it, them to buy into it is that they become active managers of the land themselves. Um, and yeah. I think that's the way that it has to be done. And, and Lisa has done a tremendous job of doing that in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, that's probably a, a new uh, paradigm that maybe 50 years ago people didn't think about or think was a big deal. I guess. No, yeah. a lot of people were really focused on just the idea of creating these sacrosanct protected areas that people were not allowed in, which of course many of those protected areas actually had people in it to begin with. So it, it, they suffered because the local people weren't bought into it. You know, they didn't treat the area as a protected area. You know, the federal governments of these countries very rarely had the money to, sure. to protect it adequately. Yeah. Um, so now there's really been a, a sea change in how people are perceiving doing wildlife conservation in these areas, which is getting local people directly involved. Great. And this, so that may build success for species by species. Excellent. We are talking this morning about preserving wild animals with Peter Zoller. Peter is the recently hired uh, vice president of conservation initiatives at Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo. Um, you've been around the country and around the world in, in your past, right? And you visit all these things. Um, 
you probably answer your bosses the way, uh, you know, they, you want, they want to hear it, but, uh, how does Woodland Park Zoo match up to some of these other places you've seen around the world? I think they're doing just a tremendous job. Um, and they're one of the top zoos in terms of actually doing conservation. They're the new way that the Woodland Park Zoo is really trying to think of themselves is as an actual conservation organization, um, that is part of a zoo, not just a zoo that is doing wildlife conservation. It's one of the reasons that my title is, is Vice President of Conservation Initiatives, because even though the main focus of my work is on doing conservation outside of the zoo, it's also about trying to make sure that conservation as a concept is incorporated in everything we do. Yeah. And people can learn much more about that online. Zoo.org is right. the website. That's a great website address. It I don't know. is indeed. You guys got on that right away <laughs> when the internet came out. Zoo.org. I love that. Um, yeah. So talk about, so as people come, they are educated as well. It's not just that behind the scenes, some work is done, but at exhibits and at the zoo, people really are, you know, an education that takes place right there. Yeah, no, we have we have brilliant staff that are involved in in outreach and education and talking with visitors and providing pre um, presentations and activities. Uh, it's really brilliant. We were talking about the the rhino exhibit. One of the other things that's just come online as a new technology is, is beacon technology um, using Footmark, which is another um, company here in the Seattle area. And this is a situation that where the beacons are actually sending out information to people's smartphones that tells them about the rhinos or about rhino conservation in Assam or gives them like really interesting quizzes and games that they can do um, as they're walking through the exhibit. So it's sort of a multimedia opportunity for both looking at the, the rhinos themselves, Taj and, and Glenn, but also learning about them through the smartphone technology that's probably in their hands anyway. You know, that is a excellent uh, way to get hold of people's attention because they are still holding onto their phone even while they're walking through the zoo and realize, oh, I, I'm still learning. Uh, while I'm, I'm, I've got my head, my head down and I'm looking at my phone, but I'm actually <laughs> listening to someone talk about this exhibit I'm looking at and yeah. learning more about whatever A, B, or C. Um, one aspect of that, I kind of want to touch, uh, if we can go there, and maybe you do or don't know a whole lot about um trafficking of international wildlife and poaching and um, those kind of remote places where you have to get the local population to say, yes, we don't want this to happen either. Where, where does that stand these days? I mean, that made some headlines every once in a while when something big happens, but mm -hmm. it must happen all the time on it, a smaller scale in remote places around the world. It's not just remote places around the world. It's everywhere, including here in Seattle. Oh, really? So, yeah, so international Wildlife trafficking is, is the fourth largest transnational crime um, after, I guess, drugs, guns, and people. Yeah. Um, it's about $20 billion a year. It's huge. And, and it's, it's fueling criminal enterprises. It's often involved in the other kind of trafficking work that's going on. So it's a, it's a big problem. And it's, it's not just far away. It's here in the U.S. I mean, Seattle has the 31st busiest airport in the world, I yeah, believe, yeah, the very, ninth, mm -hmm. ninth busiest in, in the U.S. Um, I'm sure there's things going on there that shouldn't be. Um, the same thing with the ports. About a million people a year are leaving on cruise ships alone. And while I doubt if that's actively involved in wildlife trafficking, I'm sure people are accidentally, illegally buying, you know, trinkets 
that are involved with, with endangered species that they just simply don't know about. So we're very interested in trying to get the word out about what people should and shouldn't do in terms of when they're actually out there traveling that might actually support wildlife trafficking. Yeah, well, because, I mean, we mentioned rhinos and rhino horns gets, you know, a big notice every once in a while. And that's why rhinos have been poached for a long time. For some reason, people think the horn is some mystical thing. And, and then whales and, and ivory and walrus tusks and things like that. Yeah, they, they, they grab some headlines once in a while. And, and, but it's just something as local as a bald eagle. And <laughs> Exactly. A bald eagle, um, sea turtle shells. If you're traveling down to the Caribbean, um, seahorses, sell these things. Sea yeah, you get you to, buy them in the market. Yeah, it's just a and sharks and shark fins around the different parts of the world. Different things are, some reason, coveted and then become an expensive uh, exotic item. And there's a black market for just about everything. And it's and it's and it is huge. And it's one of the biggest threats to wildlife. So right now. how does uh, an organization like the Woodland Park Zoo? I mean, can you advocate for international law changes or local law changes? Sure. Well, one, of, one, of, one of the biggest things that we did recently in 2015, um, we were leading on the effort to, uh, what I believe called 1401, which ended up, it's a citizen initiative that ended up being approved by over 70% of the population here. And they, it, it basically makes it illegal for any kind of wildlife trade for a number of key species, including rhinos, elephants, tigers, sharks, um, rays, sea turtles, that sort of thing. So it's the first ever citizen initiative passed here in the U.S. that outlaws wildlife trafficking. So that was a, a big push by us. Um, I'm, I was really delighted that Seattle went with that. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm very glad to be working here because it's such a great environment for doing conservation because the community here is just really, really interested in the environment. Yeah. Um, and Woodland Park Zoo, I think, is the perfect place as a, as a trusted in institution here that's long-term um, to help lead that process. I think so, too. I'm glad that you've said the focus is really, they've turned themselves into thinking them themselves as a conservation organization. That's beautiful. Um, we spoke briefly, I think we mentioned the Western Pond Turtle was one of those kind of local initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. um, any other projects, uh, you know, the Northwest here we, we could be interested in? There's a, there's a bunch. So yeah, the Western Pond Turtle is an interesting story and, and another great conservation success. This is a species that's found along um, the Pacific, uh, in California, Oregon, and Washington. It decreased to about 200 animals worldwide around 1990 Whoa. or so. And it's just about gone, Just Peter. about <laughs> gone, absolutely. So Woodland Park Zoo was part of an initiative with the Oregon Zoo and a few other places to head start turtles. They were, the decrease had happened primarily from habitat loss, but also from poaching, um, and finally from invasive bullfrogs, which are no they're from the East Coast. They, mm -hmm. they came into the area and they're large enough to eat the, the hatchling turtles I see. and just destroy recruitment into the population. So we've been head-starting turtles now for a number of years um, at Woodland Park Zoo in terms of, of breeding them for, well, raising them for a year, and then where they're big enough to avoid being eaten by bullfrogs and then releasing them to the wild. So there's now over a 1,000 Western pond turtles out there and, and increasing rapidly at this point. So yeah, we're really excited about that That one. is exciting. I did see a press release on that recently that there were some released uh, mm -hmm. to the wild and this happens regularly then, huh? Yes. Every, oh, every beautiful. year we have, we have releases of, of the head started turtles. And, 
River otters, butterflies, any, I mean, we only got a few minutes. Pick one of those because both of those are interesting to me. Well, otters are interesting because of, of the, the focus on, on citizen science there. So we've been doing research on otters in the Duwamish and on conservation of them. We have an otter spotter program where um, civilians are asked to, to send in information on otters that they see. We also have an amphibian monitoring program that's also citizen focused where people are supposed to go out and monitor amphibians on their own lands. Or so people can lands. get involved with this kind of conservation Absolutely. in the Woodland Park Zoo. Zoo.org. Go there, find out about it. We have a, we're just starting a coyote spotter program. So one of our projects in, in the Pacific Northwest, we work on a lot of carnivores, wolverines up in the Cascades, Martins in the Olympics, and, and, but also looking at, um, carnivores here in the greater Seattle area. A lot of people don't even know that they're living with coyotes and bobcats and they may know about raccoons because they may trash the garbage cans. But again, the idea of, of developing coexistence with these species so that we can all live together, what, how to operate around them, how to avoid having conflict with them is a big part of our project. So the coyote spotter initiative is actually part of that effort. That is cool. Uh, we only got a couple of minutes now. Uh, before we run out of time, Peter, we're talking with Peter Zoller of the Woodland Park Zoo. Anything uh, we've left out, like big topic, we should have made sure we hit this uh, before we uh, wrap up today? Or is there something you always like to say twice when you tell people, yeah, I work for conservation initiatives at the Woodland Park Zoo, and I bet you didn't know A, B, or C. What, what do you would like to let people finish with? Well, I think we, we've stressed it already, but I think understanding that Woodland Park Zoo is more than just a destination. It's an active, involved conservation organization. Um, we're working with the community of Seattle here in the Pacific Northwest to preserve some of the, the last great lands that are out there and some of the wildlife involved. But we're also working overseas on a, on a whole slew of iconic species in terms of preserving them. And we're being successful at it, which I think is one of the most exciting parts. That is a great key to mention. Yeah, so you've got projects all around the world and there are successes all around the world too. So let me bring it right back here to Woodland Park Zoo as we finish. Have you got a favorite exhibit you continue to go back to? Or when you bring someone new and say, hey, yes, I work at the zoo, come visit me today and I'll show you... I love them all, but I guess, I guess. I knew you'd say that. I, I just yes, knew you'd say that. <laughs> all my children. Well, let's um, go back and forth. Sometimes I, I see this one and sometimes yes. I take it away. I, I have a special place in my heart for the snow leopards. Um, oh. I've been working in Asia for a number of decades now on, on snow leopard conservation. So I do like to go and visit them, especially. Beautiful animals. Absolutely beautiful. They are. Yeah. And there are so many beautiful animals at the zoo. Woodland Park Zoo. We, it's a treasure here in Seattle, folks. And really, it's worth seeing uh, several times a year because the exhibits change. The animals look different, different times a year. And it's just a lot of fun. Uh, we have been talking today with the Vice President of Conservation Initiatives at the Woodland Park Zoo, Peter Zoller. Peter, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing with us. And a big, big thanks for what Woodland Park Zoo is doing for animals in their habitats uh, here in the Northwest and around the world. It's just awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.